Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Before we get to today's episode, we want to introduce you to our newest partner, which, like us, is Pure South Florida. That's Doral Toyota, where you can find all of your favorite Toyota models, whether you're looking for a new, used, or certified pre-owned vehicle. Doral Toyota is located at 9775 Northwest 12th Street. That's 9775 Northwest 12th Street, just a few blocks from International and Dolphin Malls. Experience the Doral difference, which means four years of complimentary maintenance and roadside assistance on all new vehicles. Also, in-house financing is available for credit-related issues. If you mention five reasons when you call 305-680-1129, that's 305-680-1129, or stop into the dealership, you work with a dedicated manager, not a salesman. Unlike other dealers, Doral Toyota prides itself on an honest and transparent buying process. That's Doral Toyota, DoralToyota.com, or stop in at 9775 Northwest 12th Street. Vamos, let's go. Welcome into the latest episode of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here, as always, with Chris Whittingham. Now that you have found us, whether it's on iTunes or Android, make sure that you hit the follow button to subscribe. That will get you all of our old episodes for free and all of our new episodes as soon as they post. Also, check out the other podcasts in our network for the time being. Those include Miami Heat Beat, Balls Cast, Three Yards Per Carry, and Pitch Invasion, which Chris hosts and is going three times a week during the World Cup. We've got five new podcasts coming in July, including Goldie on Ice, our Panthers NHL podcast, which will be hosted by Steve Goldstein. So we've done a few of these episodes now, Chris. They've all been really popular. We started off with Jason Jackson. Then we moved on to Tony Fiorentino, Ron Rothstein, Eric Reed, all taped episodes for us in our Heat Story series. Then we started asking players to come on. We had to start with the mayor of 305, Udonis Haslam. Then we also taped an hour with Mario Chalmers. You can find both of those in our library. And I've been putting this out on Facebook and Twitter asking Heat fans for people that they wanted to hear from. And I was really glad that this name came up because this is one of my favorite people that I covered while covering the Miami Heat, not just as a player, but as a person, the stuff that he did in the community before he got to Miami, what he did in the community after he got to Miami. And so we're really pleased to have Brian Grant with us on the podcast today. And also, Brian, you're actually on the East Coast today for a change, right? Because I know you're still living up in Oregon. Yeah, I'm on the East Coast visiting my uh, girlfriend's parents. I'm in Portland, Maine. And let me tell you what I'm getting ready to do. I'm getting ready to see who has the best lobster rolls, man. These things are incredible. I ain't never had them. Just, just loaded with lobster. Me either. It sounds delightful. Yeah, it's, it's a good time up here. But thanks for having me on, guys. I really appreciate it. You were big on the boating down here when you were in Miami and afterwards. So certainly the lobster rolls would appeal to you. Now, Brian, we want to start from the beginning here. And I wanted to start with you growing up in Ohio because it wasn't kind of the traditional upbringing for a future NBA player. And when you were working in the fields a little bit, because we know you did some of that, what was the hardest part of that work growing up? The hardest part of working in the fields were the snakes. I hate snakes. I'm terrified of snakes. I had an encounter when I was young going through my uh, grandma's 
neighbor's backyard, which we're never supposed to go through. And I stepped in a hole and was full of a garter snake that just had a bunch of babies. And so I've been terrified of snakes. And so, you know, when you're cutting a quarter mile row of tobacco, every once in a while you'll chop and boom, there's one right there. And I, they always knew when there was a snake because I took off running. And in terms of your family there and, and your upbringing, um, one of the stories that I read about that I wasn't even really completely aware of is when you were growing up, you were very, very sick, right? I'd gotten sick. I'd gotten double pneumonia. And my mother used to take me and drop me off at my grandma's house in the morning. When you go in your grandma's house in the wintertime, and even most of the time in the summer, the old oil stove would be going. So it's like 120 in there. And so she drops me off and she walks out and I can't even breathe to tell her to come get me. And something just told her to come turn around and come grab me and take me to the hospital. And when she took me there, they were like, thank God you brought him here. He probably would have died. So I was really filled up with uh, double pneumonia and I was in there for almost three weeks in a bubble until I, you know, I got better. So, Brian, how does that lead from all of that and, and, and your childhood in Ohio to basketball? How'd you pick up the game and eventually discover you were good at it and then uh, get scholarship offers? Well, I tell you what, I didn't never really think that I was good at it. I just always knew that I there were certain things that I could do well, and that was like rebound and, and, and defend people. But I didn't like basketball growing up. I grew up around 10 or 11 cousins all around the same age in a small town. So it was very competitive. So I didn't like it. And I was always taller and they'd always try to get me to play, but I didn't like it. I didn't start playing until like my eighth grade year because uh, the neighboring town, I was playing peewee football. We didn't have a football team at our high school. So I had to start playing. And my uncle, John, he uh, took me aside because I was always mad because they didn't pick me and started teaching me calisthenics and stuff like that. Now, did that help? Probably not. But it's just one of the first memories I have of getting ready to start playing basketball. And in my ninth grade year, I was 5'10 and a half when I left school. And I came back my sophomore year. I was almost 6'4". So didn't play my sophomore year. Went out for the team my junior year, got in a fight with the coach. Not a physical fight, but war of words because he got on my cousin and um, got kicked off the team. And that whole year I was out partying all night during school week. You know, I was on my way to failing out of school. And it was summertime, beginning of summertime for my senior year. And a commercial came on for University of Cincinnati. And I looked at my mom and told her I was going to college. And she slammed her brakes on and about put me through the front windshield. And turned and looked at me and said, what'd you say? And I said, uh, I'm going to college. She goes, you ain't going to college. You ain't shit. You ain't going to be shit. Your dad ain't shit. You ain't shit. So don't ever talk that shit to me. And for my mom to say that to me was like, the almighty calling down and telling you you ain't shit. So from that point, I kind of turned it around and said, all right, I'm going to at least graduate high school. Make my mom proud. And then I started playing basketball down at these outdoor courts and all these old, older cousins in uh family members that I'd play ball against basically beat me up for three weekends and then pulled me aside and told me if I wasn't going to bring it, they was going to kick my ass because I'm wasting talent or something like that. And that's kind of how everything started. And then I went back to school, was going to play for a new coach. And then I got in a fight with the kid because he called me the N-word. I tried to avoid it, but he wouldn't let me. So beat him up. They wanted to expel me. My mother called the NAACP. So they Took it to five days of being suspended, which you get five zeros. Didn't think I'd make it through that to be able to play. And this one teacher, his class, I had to pass. I always thought he was racist, too, because he would always say shit to me like, I'll be on your black ass like a duck on a June bug, stuff like that. Jesus. Get your black ass. And then also, like in American history class, it seemed like I always had to read when the N-word came up during the Civil War time. So I didn't like American history, especially when I was only black in the class. And uh, I had to pass this test and I could only miss one. And after I took his test, after cramming for biology and all these other classes, I, I knew I'd, I'd miss more than one. 
So after the next day when class was over, he told me sit down. Everybody cleared out and he told me to get my black ass up to the desk. I walked up there and I missed four. And he looked at me and said, what is this shit? And I go, I don't want to make any excuses. But I, I was cramming, but, I, but I'm not making any excuses. He goes, son, you can't fight everybody who calls you the N-word or calls you something you don't like. Or you'll be fighting every day of your life. And you'll be messing up just like you messed up on this test. And I was just cheering up at that point. And then he told me, you know, looked at the test. And I was wondering, he always liked to mark them with red ink, like really big red ink to let you know you missed this. And they were in pencil. And so we went down. He started asking me the question. They were multiple choice. And I got them all except for one. And then he looked at me and said, son, sometimes people are giving second chances in life. You just got yours and told me to get out. So if he didn't do that for me, <laughs> there's no Brian Grant did the high school player, Brian Grant college, Brian Grant, definitely NBA. And, you know, it was just one of those blessings that happened. And, you know, he's, he's still alive. You can't see now Mr. Martin, Georgetown, has my mentor, stay in touch with him because he was the one that really allowed me to move forward past that. Wow. And so you end up going to Xavier. What went into that decision? Because like you said, you saw a commercial for Cincinnati. You end up playing in Ohio and then becoming one of the best players in, in Xavier history. And that's it's a pretty rich history, actually, with some of the guys who've come out of there. So what went into that decision? And, and when when did you kind of sort of recognize, okay, I, I have a chance to maybe take this thing to the next level? I didn't recognize that until after school, after I graduated and went to the uh, camp combine. First of all, when I when I got when I received the scholarship to go to Xavier, they had five, and they'd already brought in you know two power forwards, one from Chicago, one from uh, Wilmington, Delaware, Eric Edwards, and then uh, Steve Gentry and Tyrese Walker, who were both from Cincinnati. And so when Gillen came to watch me play in our district, you know, we ended up losing, and he came in and said, you know, we got one scholarship left. It's between you and a kid from Mount Healthy, and I go, I, I'll take it. And he goes, what? I go, I said, I, I'd like to commit. And he goes, Dino, come here. He, he wants to commit. So I committed verbally, immediately. I mean, why wouldn't I? I mean, Xavier was a, a big program. There were only two programs you followed, either Cincinnati or Xavier. And so I committed to Xavier. And when I got there in the summertime, because we had to go there for summer school, kind of like an, an initiation into college, you know, it was just I just kept my mouth shut, you know, and listened to everybody talk. And there was a lot of talking going on, just a lot of, I got this, this award, this, you know, I did this, I did that. And I knew I hadn't done anything. I was like 13th state in rebounding in Division Four, so that's nothing. So maybe I'm not supposed to be here. But you know, when I start, we start playing pickup games. That's when everything changed because I never talked. I let my play take care of things. And so our first preview game was against a Polish national team, and one of the guys got in trouble. And coach had to start a freshman. He never, Pete Gillen never liked starting freshmen. And he called my name, and I was like, wow, you know, over all these other guys. And so there was an opportunity, door opened up, and I think I went out there and got like 20 points and 18, 19 rebounds or something like that. And it was just like, from that point on, I was a starter. Had a pretty good four-year career. I really enjoyed college socially. It was just a great place to you know live and learn and grow up, make mistakes and correct them, things like that. And then my senior year, we made the NIT, but it wasn't nothing big. I wasn't hearing my name tossed around. So after that season was over, I was going to Procter & Gamble and General Electric and Grippo's Potato Chips to put in my resume, you know, to get ready to start working because I knew that we had alumni there that would, would give me a job, at least an entry level. And then three agents called Pete Gillen and wanted to meet with me. One was Ryan Grinker, who, who passed away several years ago, Bill Duffy and Mark Bartlestein. 
two of them told me if I played in any of the postseason camps that I'd play myself out of the chance to be a second rounder or overseas player. And Mark came in with a different attitude, just like telling me he's been watching film, thinks I could be the sleeper in the draft. And, you know, I'm, I'm thinking he's blowing smoke up my ass. Like, you know, okay, yeah, right, okay. But you believe in me, so I'm going to believe in you. And I went to the Desert Classic. It was just like college all over again. I went in there and, you know, just sitting around, chilling, listening to everybody. And when you get there, people put notes under your doors, like the, the teams that want you to come visit. And so this one dude was like, hey, asking everybody, you know, how many notes did you get? Oh, I got eight. I got seven. I got six. Brian, how many notes did you get? I said, shoot, I got New York. And he looked at me and goes, everybody gets New York. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say nothing. I just looked at him and said, you're going to be the first dude I get, the first one I get when I hit that court. But it wasn't like I thought it was going to be because uh, in the morning you had to do skills. And if you've been to Phoenix's gym, I mean, they, they line the gym with seats all the way around it. And there's nothing but GMs and owners and scouts and coaches there. I think they brought us out in groups of seven or something like that and had us start off by doing like not a running jump hook, but a left shoulder turn jump hook. I was so nervous. I accidentally threw it too hard and it almost like hit the back top of the backboard. And I started hearing some of them laugh. And I was like, oh, shit, I got to get out of here. I started backing up looking for the door. And somebody grabbed my shoulder. I don't remember what player. I can't remember his name, but he grabbed me and said, hey, don't worry about it. Just get back in line. Come on. And so I got back in line. And when I was done with that, went to my room and called Mark. And I was just upset, like, man, I think I'm going to come home today. He goes, what? Why? I go, I threw the ball up and hit the top of the backboard. He's like, don't worry about this shit. They don't care about this shit. He said, just wait until tonight. Wait until tonight. Go out there and play like your life depends on it, like you always do. And I was like, okay. So I... um had Casey Jones, he was my head coach. And I went to the two point guards we had, Anthony Goldwire and uh, Khalid Reeves. And I said, hey, if I get that damn rebound and give it to you and beat everybody down the court, we give it back. They said, you gonna get the rebound, beat everybody down the court? And you gonna give me the assist? I said, yeah. And they said, all right. And that's what we did, boom. And I just, I think it was like 20 points, 20 some rebounds, first game, just killed it. And next day I had all the letters under my door. <laughs> Not just New York. Yeah, it, it, it wasn't just the Knicks anymore. <laughs> so, so Brian, um, after all that, you, you end up getting drafted in the first round, number eight overall. And I, I want to go back a little bit to something you said earlier because you talked about wanting to make your mother proud and that you, you didn't feel that you did that when you were growing up. Was she proud when you got drafted? Was was that the moment? And when did that kind of turn for you? My mother was proud of me the day I told her I was going to college, you know, because no one in our family or really no one in our town. And I take that back. There was one other person that got a basketball scholarship to a Division One school, Kelly Benintendi to Michigan. She was like the Jordan of our town for years, like five or six years older than me. But uh, when I went to Xavier, I mean, she, you know, she was proud. She was very proud of me. I think she was very proud of the fact that I graduated. She knew how hard I had to work because when I went to Xavier, I got in there on a C minus in pre-algebra. And the next year is when they raised the curriculum where you had to have algebra two and geometry and stuff like that. So I wouldn't have been able to go to college if it had been one more year later. So it's just all these things that were just happening, you know, things that I had no control over, but they were happening. And so I knew that something was going to happen. I didn't think NBA, I, I thought more or less, man, I'm going to have an opportunity to get out of Ohio maybe go west 
meet a beautiful woman and be able to provide for my family. And that's really what happened, you know, but add the NBA to it too. So you get drafted number eight overall by Sacramento, but the team that you joined had some pretty good players on it. I mean, Mitch Richmond uh, is in the Hall of Fame. Spud Webb, obviously, someone that people know. Walt Williams. What do you remember about your rookie experience? What was it like being a first-round pick with all of the expectations that come with that? Well, it was funny because um, once I got drafted, it was like the next day I was on a plane with my best friend Tyrese Walker, who I went to Xavier with. We landed, and there was this convertible limo out there. And I'm like, all right, well, this is cool. And they're taking us in, and the radio's on. And all of a sudden, they're like, what do you think about the new draft picks? Oh, what the fuck? Bullshit. <laughs> and the guy turned it off. No, turn it back on. Turn it back on. He goes, no, you don't want to hear that. So, yeah, turn it back on. So we're going, and my boy Tyrese is like, yep, just like college again. Just like you're going to have to go in there and show them. And I was like, all right. You know, you feel them. They're feeling my tank, you know, with shit saying negative stuff. I never got hyped up by somebody patting me on the back. It was always when somebody told me I couldn't do shit. That's why I get hyped up. So we went in and there was like 20 media people at this place called America Live, which used to be a great spot to hang out on on the weekends. And I thought that was normal, 20 media people. But the year before there was like, when when Bobby had come, there were two or 3,000 people downtown. But I didn't know that. So I thought, yeah, I'm, what do you think about the turnout? I said, man, I'm just, yeah, I'm happy you guys even came out of here. And they're like, oh, okay. He must not know that nobody showed up in protest, sort of, of them drafting me. And so I made a stupid comment, just trying to be funny and take one-liners from Pete Gillen. The guy goes, so how soon will you get your deal done? I go, I'm ready to do it now for a bag of chips and a Dr. Pepper. <laughs> and so <laughs> I ended up, and, and I've, I've said this before, I ended up holding out, not because of my contract, because my damn girlfriend broke up with my butt the day after I got drafted. She's like, I'm happy for you, this, that, and other. You cheated on me all year, and I don't want to speak to you no more. And I just thought, okay, whatever. And then that stuff started sinking in a couple months later. And I, here I am in Sacramento, going back to Cincinnati, going back to Xavier, because she was the senior Xavier and hey what's going on what's, what's up what's up so my agent's calling me going are you going to camp tomorrow I go, what are they offering and he tell me I go man come on that's not enough he goes, okay yeah yeah let's, let's, let's do a little bit more <laughs> it got down to where it was like the last game of the preseason he comes back to me and goes man I tell you what I wouldn't want to play poker with you gosh they're giving you this this is security you've got outs in it you, you're doing better than seven and six and they said, if you don't take this, then good luck over in Europe. And I said, I'll take it. Because, man, I tell you, man, you've got to steal. And I go, dude, I still wasn't able to get her back. And he goes, who? I said, my girlfriend. He goes, what the fuck? What was that about your girlfriend? I go, dude, I've been going, I thought you knew I've been going back and forth to Cincinnati. He goes, and that's what, oh my God. I'm, and he hung up on me. He got pissed and hung up on me. <laughs> <laughs> this is my boy, too. To this day, we're still very good friends. Still helps me out, man. But, it was his belief in me that really, you know, gave me the fuel to be able to get to those 15 team visits I did. Man, dude, it was it was crazy. I want to get into a little bit more with you about Rashid, because I think in some ways Rashid has been misunderstood. To me, he was one of the most gifted players to play that position during your era. And then when he ended up later in his career going to Detroit, he put a lot of his game aside to fit in with a collective group that ended up winning a championship and was a dominant team of that particular era. What about Rashid personally, though? Like, Because I, I think there's a perception of him that he's kind of a little bit crazy, not so much of a team guy. 
Did you experience any of that? What were your personal interactions with him once you joined the Blazers? Sheed Wallace was like a big kid, man. Nobody could beat him in football, man. Nobody could beat him in any kind of video game. And then when he's off the court, you know, if you're not in his circle of friends or people that he messes with, then he just doesn't mess around, you know, because you're with guys 82 games out of the season. I mean, at times I wish I could be more like that, but, you know, that's how it was. I, I happened to be in his circle of friends. So, you know, he wasn't crazy. He wasn't mean or anything like that, but it, don't press him on something because he will tell you how he feels, you know what I'm saying? And more people need to be more honest like that than always tell people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes you got to be able to tell people no, too. And he had no problem telling somebody no. His talent level, Brian, like uh, where would you put it compared to some of the other bigs of that era? I mean, I never knew much about Bob McAdoo growing up until I played with the Heat and I started seeing all the film on McAdoo. And McAdoo might roll over in his chair at the at the Heat office. He's a similar McAdoo. He's not a McAdoo. <laughs> he's not a McAdoo, but he's similar because – I mean, McAdoo could shoot that thing, had attitude, didn't play too much defense from what I saw. But (laughs) we'll let you know, I gave him 50. No, I could see Rashid saying, I gave him 36. But that also goes to this. You know, he changed his game to fit into the Detroit scheme of things. He also changed his game when I came there, too, because he was asked to play a smaller position. Mm-hmm. And that's when he started shooting threes. And everybody was like, damn, we didn't know he could shoot threes. But, he, you know, he was one of our top three-point shooters on the team, he and Sabana. So, I mean, he kind of – he could have been very upset about that. Maybe he was at times, but it wasn't something he put on me. You know what I'm saying? It's like he loved being on the court with me, and I loved being on the court with him because we got things done. But it was a little tough for him, I think, at first because he was at the three. When you came to Portland, there was kind of a reputation of the Blazers as the quote-unquote jail Blazers in terms of not being the best with the community, getting into some trouble. And it seemed to me like in a lot of ways, you changed the perception of that two different ways, all the work that you were doing off the court, but also the Rasta man type following that you got in Portland. When did you think that the fans really started to embrace you? And I know you don't love talking about this stuff because I know a lot of this you do without the cameras, but how did you start to sort of get yourself integrated into the Portland community and help all the people that you started to help? You know, when I was coming up, man, I can remember times where things were tight in our household. I can remember getting food from the church, you know, hand-me-downs here and there for my cousins and things like that, which to me was just normal growing up. And so when I got in the position to be able to help people, I wanted to be able to help, but didn't want it to be a distraction to anything else that I was doing. So I tried to always keep it on the down low. Portland, I hooked up with a guy named Brian Berger and Lauren Foreman, and we formed a foundation. It was just a foundation that was like a pass-through foundation to help families. A lot of times, terminally ill kids that were up on the hill at Dornbecker's Children's Center, you know, to help with their bills or help with their travel and things like that. And it wasn't until I got with those two that I really found my niche in doing that and really was able to do some real help in the in the community, not something that just is on Thanksgiving or Christmas, but year round. And the whole experience for me, you know, changed my life because at the time when I just got there, I was going through my own personal things at home and then thinking, as we all do, oh, this is the end of the world. It's, you know, everything's going to change, this, that, and other. You go up to Dornbeckers for a half hour and go on this cancer ward where the leukemia kids are, and it changes your damn mind quick. You will quickly say, get on your knees, thank the father, and go home and kiss your kids and say that, you know what, we'll get through this. Because so many times, you know, going, you know, down those rooms and everything, 
the thing I remember the most wasn't really the kids smiling and jumping around, but it was the parents having that look on their face, like, help me, help me. And there's nothing that you can do for them other than just perk their child up at that moment. And the thing about it that I think people don't recognize, not just that you would visit the kids, but you would develop relationships with the kids. And there are a few stories that are told quite a bit. Um, I remember writing about one when you came to Miami uh, about the Reyes family, and we can touch on them a little bit here going forward. But the one that gets mentioned the most is your relationship with Dash Thomas, uh, who was 12 years old at the time. Can you tell it in your words, like how you developed a relationship and how often you saw him and also how far away he was from where you were so that you could see him that frequently? Dash was a young man who had a uh brain cancer. I forget what it's called, but he he had he had a tumor that was basically inoperable because it grows in like tentacles and you can't get it all ever. And so he lived in Sublimity, which was uh, south of Portland at the end of Salem. And then you go east about another point. So he's about a good hour away, hour and 15 minutes away. And, you know, the first time we went down to visit, I was going down with Brian Berger because he had heard about him and, you know, said, let's go down and visit this kid. And, and Honestly, when I first did it, I, I was not doing it to start relationships because I knew that would be something tough, you know, with these kids. But once you meet them and you meet their parent, parents and their family, it just, you know, it just happens naturally. And, you, you know, anyway, we went down there and I'm thinking this kid's going to be in a wheelchair sitting around looking, you know, like it was the end. And he comes running outside with a basketball and says, let's put them up. And I'm like, all right. So we start shooting, hang out with his parents for a while, talk to his brothers and sisters, hear about some of the things he's going through, this, that, and the other. And they thank me for coming down and said, nice of you to spend time with him. And then I'm talking to him. We got to talk, I don't know, about foosball or maybe skee-ball or something like that. And he told me they had a little spot that had it at a movie theater. And I said, well, shoot, I'll come back and once you get some of your friends and we'll all go to a movie and then we can play some foosball or something. He said, all right. And the parents stopped when I left, like, my God, why would he tell him that? He knows he's not coming back. And we came back next week and we went. And from there, it was just like, you know, talking to him on the phone and, you know, going down to see him. I couldn't stop at that point because, you know, he had already kind of gotten into me and my emotions and just wanting to be there for him. So it was, uh, you never can tell yourself, I'm not going to do that. If you're human, somebody touches your heart, they touch your heart. And there's nothing really you can do about it, but go with your heart. A word from one of our new sponsors. That sponsor is miss-inc.com. That's miss-inc.com. They are social media problem solvers. They do social media marketing and content writing. We are using them right now. They've been in business for 10 years and they believe in a personal customized approach to marketing. So they only represent businesses that are serious about taking their visibility to the next level. Social media marketing requires much more than just a blog or profiles on a website like Facebook or Twitter. It takes a smart strategy and a daily interactive focus. Miss Inc. has been leveraging social media for Miami businesses since 2008. They don't believe in cookie cutter strategies or in boxing your business in with others in your industry. Here's how you check them out. Go to miss-inc.com or call 305-537-6465. I want to get to one more memory with the Blazers, and then I have a question related to what we're talking about here. But the one basketball memory that, that everybody kind of brings up with that team is how close you were to the finals and having a 15-point lead 
against the the Shaq Kobe Lakers. And that team you had in Portland was a really good team. Like if our listeners have a chance, go on Basketball Reference and look at the 99-2000 Portland team and just look at some of the names on that team and that nine-man, 10-man rotation. I want to take you back to that game a little bit, Brian. You build a 15-point lead against this kind of perceived as juggernaut type team. And then everybody kind of remembers the the alley-oop, Kobe to Shaq. Can you take us back to that game a little bit, your sort of range of emotions with that team? I'll take you back to being down 3-1 first. And we were down 3-1, and we had made the Western Conference Finals the year before. Should have won that game, but Sean Elliott hit a tiptoe in the three so his heels won't go out of bounds and hits the three, and we lose the first game that we should have won in San Antonio. And I do believe if we'd have won that first game, we'd have went on the Beatles. Now we're we're in L.A. We're down 3-1, win that one, 3-2, go back to Portland. That game, you know, I thought, are we going to do like we did last year? Are we going to, you know, are we going to buck up and, and go out there and get it done? We went out there and got it done. And so when we were going to L.A., it was like there was a there was such a feeling of confidence that that's what I remember more than losing and losing the game in that fourth quarter with five minutes. I remember being on that bus just looking at everybody saying, you know, without having to stay like, yeah, we're about to kick their ass. We, you know, it was just – we was going to be that team that came back from 3-1 and, and, and won that stuff. And we were that we were that team for three quarters. And then we got down to, like, the six-minute mark, up 15. And the ironic thing about it was, I don't know if he was the first person to hit a three, but I know he put up at least two of those threes, was um, we released him. Brian Shaw, he made a couple shots, and I just was thinking to myself, it's just some bad karma going on right now. And then uh, Mike put me back in the game. I think Rashida missed his last three or four shots. Steve Smith had missed his last shot. It turned so fast. It was like a whirlwind, man. We needed, like, timeout, timeout, timeout. And then when they went ahead with that little alley-oop play, I, I knew if I stepped up, he's going to throw it to Shaq. But if I don't step up, he's going to come down the middle, and I'm going to have to catch it late, and then I might get put in the basket. So I stepped up. Then nobody rolled back, and Shaq hit the alley-oop, and that was it. And then, of course, Shaq running down the court afterwards. That's kind of the image that uh, that everybody remembers. So the Lakers, that ended up being the, the first of a three-year championship run for them. Like, it almost didn't even get started if you guys just closed closed the fourth quarter of the 2000 playoffs. Well, if we'd have won that, I always like to think back and be like, dang, if we would have won that game and won a championship, then, you know, I might be able to get up in the Raptors with Clyde Drexler and guys like that, you know, Maurice Lucas's and and Bill Walton's and stuff like that, but it didn't happen that way. Portland, they love their Blazers, but I tell you what, it wasn't the players that just had felt heartbreak. It was everybody. I mean, we got back. I mean, you go to the grocery store, people were, you know, ladies crying, like, you almost had it. You know, it's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> the craziest part was sitting in that locker room, just looking at faces that we were so stunned. We went from that just super overly confident group of guys to like, what the hell just happened? We couldn't even really talk about it. It was just like, okay, guys, let's just get on the bus. And we did, we got on the bus, but I knew that the team wasn't going to be having that togetherness that we had that year. We weren't going to have that again. So I, I knew it was probably time for me to go. And plus I was hearing that I might get traded to Cleveland, which to me, I love my great state of Ohio, but I did not want to play that close to all my family. It would be too much of a distraction. Let's go through that process a little bit. So 2000, now you were a free agent in 2000, right? Unrestricted free agent? Right. Now, just to give you a little bit of the dynamics here, which I don't know if you were as familiar with when you were up there, but that was, I mean, people talk about the 2010 summer for Pat Riley, but it kind of started with the 2000 summer. Like Pat planned for that summer. He wanted to have cap space. 
I think the first two guys that he targeted were Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill and actually took a plane up to Orlando to try to keep those two guys from signing with the Magic. And they, they both of them ended up signing with the Magic. And then there were a couple of dominoes that fell here, the first of which was that the Heat team down here had kind of hit a wall. That team had kept making the playoffs, kept losing to the Knicks, and it was finally time to break up that core. And so finally, after years of kind of dangling him in trades, but him being a really important player on the Heat, Pat finally trades P.J. Brown along with Jamal Mashburn, brings in Eddie Jones, brings in Anthony Mason, and then makes the move to bring you in in a three-team trade. But it had to come with your consent. So can you talk a little bit about the pitch that Pat made? How did he envision things coming together? How did he sell you on the heat? Well, first of all, when you know the season was over and free agency was starting, Miami was not on my radar whatsoever. Because I was I was scared of those workouts. Like you'd hear guys who played with them, like, oh man, dude, I was I was in the best shape of my life, but but you but you gotta work, man. You gotta work, work. I was like, Man, I don't work that hard, I don't think. <laughs> so I, I was trying to go to New York and you know, I went out there on a visit, you know, took me on a yacht around the bay and all that. And the the Blazers were like, Nope, there's nobody that we wanna do a sign and trade with. So so the Blazers would have to commit to it, too. And so they said no. And then we said, well, who would you want to do it with? And, oh, we consider Cleveland. And that was just the indicator. No, not doing that. So we're on our way to Jamaica. And my agent calls me and says, hey, do me a favor. Will you just stop in Miami and, and meet with Pat Riley? I said, no, man, I, I'm not meeting with him. He goes, just meet with him. Just meet, just, you know, come on. He's a good businessman. He's somebody, you know, he's asked if you'd stop in. And it'd be good to just at least stop in, you know, because you never know when you might cross fast. I said, okay, we'll stop in. And so they put us over on South Beach, I think in the penthouse of the Delano or something like that. And Gina's like, wow, could you imagine if we lived here every after? Don't even start. Don't even look at the water. Don't look at the feet. <laughs> you can go down to the pool only when I'm with you. And then we're going then we're going back to the room, going to bed, going to Jamaica. She's like, all right, let's go. So here's the thing I didn't know about Pat Riley. I knew that he was just coached and demanded all this stuff from me, but I was coming from, I don't want to say chaos, but I was coming from a team where there was a, a scrap every day, you know, everybody, because you had all this talent that should have been starting everywhere around the league, but it was on one team and there's not enough minutes except for like seven or eight of us. And so it was always chaotic. Craziest things I saw were happening right there, but I just figured, well, shit, it must be normal, you know? And um, I go in, and as soon as we met with him, the air just changed. Like, you know, like like it was it, like the air was stopping to say, hey, Riley's coming, chill out, act right. <laughs> and so he started walking us through the arena because it wasn't all the way finished yet. And, you know, he took us to the practice court and says, see, here we have, you know, the beautiful Biscayne Bay and, and, and uh, South Beach. And here's our techno gym bikes. And then he goes, do you have any questions? He, he specifically stopped and wanted me to ask him a question about working out because he's like, you have any questions about these bikes? I go, what are they? He's like, yeah, well, we put keys in there and your workouts are there. And, you know, Brian, I don't ask him. I, I just ask for guys to you know, treat this as what it is. It's a business. You know, our owner has provided us with this place and this, and it's our job to make sure we, we pay. You know, we do what we got to do to try to get a championship. And he was just so cool and he ran everything. He was in control. There was no sweating. You know, he, he wanted me to come there, but it wasn't like he's begging me. He was just like, hey, this is what I can offer you. And he didn't even know it, but just him being in control was enough. I was like, wow. I walked out of there and Gino was like, well, 
talking about the bikes and stuff, huh? I go, yeah. And she goes, well, were we thinking about Cleveland? I go, no, man. I, I, to tell you the truth, I, I, I'm kind of thinking about here. And she goes, but he just said that they can only pay you the two point something, the two point five exception this year, and then make you know after that year we can talk about a bigger contract. And I go, Gina, I, I can't explain it to you. It just there's something about this dude that just I love, man. I mean, you know, he, I'm sitting there, we're talking about bikes and courts and talking about locker rooms and stuff, and I'm just like ready to suit up and go out there and tear somebody's head off for him. You know what I'm saying? And I he wasn't even my coach. And so we went to Jamaica and then all this stuff started happening with the Blazers hearing about my visit and me liking it. They came in with, with a higher offer than they originally had offered us and said, look, Brian, you know. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game. I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Miami Heat. Business, sometimes people say things, but it's just business, don't take things personal, but I took things personal. You were saying bad things about me, I was like, well, all right, I ain't messing with you. And so my agent calls me and I go, I'm going to Miami, he goes, what? <laughs> Mark was like, he's like, let's sit, let's sit. where's Gina? Put Gina on the phone. Like, Mark, I- <laughs> talking to him he goes what did Riley say what did he do what did he promise I go he didn't promise me shit and matter of fact he told me you you will work like everybody else everybody works good with the family atmosphere and, and and you know what that's just such the truth because when I came back after eight years being gone and went to the arena everybody that worked in the garage security throughout the, the every they're saying people still work there they take care of their people once you're in you're in if you want to you know do what you're supposed to do and so I just was like, told Portland no, called him up, told him yes. And he was like, really? <laughs> I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, you know, we can't sign you for 30 days. Uh, what are you going to do for 30 days? <laughs> kind of like, I was like, oh, we got to go back to Portland. because goes, oh, man, that's, uh, that's going to be a tough one there, isn't it? I go, yeah. He goes, yeah. Maybe y'all should go on a vacation or something. <laughs> I was like, nah, man. I'm a man of my word. I told you I'm coming. I'm coming. He goes, all right. And so we get on a plane from Jamaica back to Portland, and I'm starting to read all this stuff. And this one guy says, you know, Cleveland Cavaliers offer Grant the max, and he goes to Miami for the 2.25 exception. He's got to be the dumbest athlete ever. And I'm just like, damn. I mean, I'm getting hit from everywhere. And then I land in Portland. And I tell you, this is no lie. We landed in Portland. It took us like an hour and a half, almost two hours to make it the baggage claim. I mean, it was just, boom, just fans from Portland. Just This one little, little old lady came up to me crying, like, don't leave. It's such a role. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was some sad shit. I mean, it was like, 
I felt great that that I was so appreciated, but it was took us almost two hours to make it to baggage claim. And Portland Airport's not that big. So he was right. So I ended up getting myself a, a bike, a bike, just because I remember those bikes. I said, shoot, I got to be ready. I got to be in shape. So I just started working out, working out, working out, working out. And it got down to the last, the day before that I could sign. He calls me and says, how you doing? I said, I'm good. He says, you still coming? I said, I'm a man of my word, but I tell you, it's been tough. He goes, I know. I've been reading everything. I, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I didn't think that you would end up coming here. I thought you'd go back to Portland. I go, no, man of my word. I'm coming to Miami. He said, okay. Then the next day, Rod calls me. He goes, all right, you coming down, right? To sign. I said, yeah. He goes, call your agent. I said, why? He goes, thank you. I like what I did. And then hung up called my agent Mark and he was like sitting there going, Oh my God, man, I can't believe this. He goes, Riley orchestrated this trade. You're, you're getting this. I was like, what? He was like, yeah. I was like, he didn't have to do that. He had me already at the exception, but he went out because I stayed loyal to him and did that for me. So I'm forever indebted to, to the man. I mean, not only as a coach, but as a friend too. So. This is the Five Reasons Sports Network, sports by Miami, for Miami, on demand. We now have 10 podcasts in the network, posting roughly 15 times per week. All can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and several cross-platform apps. We're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Here's some of what you missed last week on Miami Heat Beat. Are we a Tyler Johnson away? Are we a Hassan? I can't even do that to you. I'm sorry. Breaking news. The Cavs are in shambles. <laughs> if you want to get involved as a sponsor or contributor, reach out to us at number five reason sports on Twitter. And be sure to punch five reasons in your search bar and then hit subscribe. As you mentioned, you were going to take the exception and then Riley uh, pulled off this deal, which allowed him to basically max you out, um, which uh, again, did not seem like there was any possibility of that. And, you know, in that trade, and I, I remember this one vividly because it's one of the few trades that I actually broke in the newspaper. I, I actually had this one first for the Palm Beach Post. So the Heat ended up sending Chris Gatling, Clarence Weatherspoon, and a first round pick along with cash to the Cavs in that trade. And so that allowed Brian to get a seven year contract. As I mentioned earlier, th- those are not given out anymore. But at the time, there were seven year deals. And I want to take you back a little bit with this now because. As you mentioned, Eddie Jones was there because uh, he'd also signed a seven-year contract. And the team that Pat put together on paper looked like he could win the Eastern Conference, as you mentioned. Like, that starting lineup was supposed to be Zoe, you at the four, Eddie Jones and Tim Hardaway in the backcourt. You also had Bruce Bowen, and you had Anthony Mason. So uh, in terms of that top six, like, that was a team that we thought could actually get to the finals. I just want to see if you can elaborate a little bit more on the Zoe thing, because, you know, I remember that you guys were up at FAU for training camp. And like you said, all of a sudden Zoe's not there. Did you know, so the organization told you right away, like, this is it for him because Zoe ended up coming back later that season. Like you guys played 69 games without him and he came back with 13 games left in that regular season. When you first heard this news, did you think, okay, that that's it? You know, when he said it was a kidney ailment, I just, yeah, I thought that was it. I thought that was it. Knowing Zoe, the way I know him now, I should have known that he was going to do whatever he got to do to come back and play, whatever exercise, whatever medications he has to take. He was going to come back because he just had a fire and a love for the game. He's a total competitor. And, you know, I wish I would have got a chance to have been part of uh, that Heat team that when he was throwing blocking shots, 
throwing people off of him, all that kind of, I, I love that. All right, so let's get to your your Heat tenure. Uh, the first year didn't go so great, but those are actually probably the first teams that me personally, I, I'm I'm 25 years old, and so those were like the teams that I grew up watching. And then obviously the 0304 team comes, and you guys were all such an incredibly likable cast of characters. They kind of grew up together in front of our eyes. I know obviously you're an established NBA veteran, but a lot of young players on that team. What was that experience like after starting 0-7, after it kind of looked like, oh, man, here we go again, and then you figured out your way into a pretty incredible season and obviously a second-round playoff run? Well, I, I tell you what, we started off 0-7, but there was there was one guy that kept us all together and kept us from jumping ship, and that was Stan Van Gundy. Because he would mathematically come in and show us, see, mathematically, we're playing good ball. We just got to come up in this. I mean, and it made sense to everybody. And we're like 0-6, 0-7, and then we finally get a win. And then it's like, uh, uh, and then, okay, we're coming back. Okay, we're doing a little something. But before the season ever started, it was, it, it, it was fun because, you know, UD and um, Dwayne came in. I can remember the first time playing with Dwayne in pickup games. This kid was out there, you know, juking everybody, going to the hole, this, that, and then taking a shot. Finally, he went in one time, and I thought he should have passed it off to me. He went on the shot. I said, hey, man, pass the goddamn ball. And he goes, oh, so many shooters if I'm open. <laughs> so I'm going to shoot. <laughs> I was like, that was kind of ballsy for a rookie, but he did. He kept shooting, but I like that about him. I like that. Um, and, just, and then UD, <laughs> it's funny. I, I'm going to have to listen to your podcast with him because – he was that young, uh, Liberty City attitude, you know, strong as hell. For he didn't look like you look at him, you knew he was okay. He's strong, but he was really strong. And I'm I'm getting to the years where I'm not as strong as that. But he was giving me fits from the day he gave, got in there. And I'd always be like, man, why don't you settle down a little bit? Take your time. He goes, no, nah, man, you too slow and you too this. And I'm like, all right, all right. And then I saw him in Portland. What was it like four or five years ago? He runs out, gives me hugs. He goes. Man, Vet, I know what you mean. These young guys swinging me around, throwing me. It's, it made me, first thing I thought of was you saying, wait until you get my age. They're going to start doing it to you. He was like, hey, ain't nobody ever going to do that to me. I'm from Liberty City. Shoot, they started doing it to him. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, yeah, he and Dwayne were my rookies, man. They were, they were good rookies. Because, you know, I don't even know if guys have rookies anymore. I know Jordan and them were somebody's rookie. I was somebody's rookie. I was Dwayne Coswell and Walt Williams rookie. Got their coffee, got their paper. Dwayne and them used to do that for me. And it was just a good, I mean, my last year there, I, I knew once Shaq said he wanted to leave L.A. and Miami was one of his places he wanted to go, I knew I was out of there. I knew I was out of there. But it was a, that year was special because we could mathematically see how good we were getting. Like, man, we start off 0-7, now we're winning games. And then in the very end, I think we ended up, what seed did we get? I think you got a four seed actually, because yeah, and you ended up you ended up forty two and forty playing on the Hornets. There was that scramble in the last couple games of the season to see who was going to be like between fourth and seventh, and you guys ended up getting home court against New Orleans. And I actually wanted to ask you about that series because um, you know I think we all remember it vividly as you know Dwayne had had a great rookie season, but it had been overshadowed a little bit because he was in LeBron and Carmelo's class, and and so it was going to get overshadowed. But that series against New Orleans is like a a sneaky underrated series in heat history, in my opinion, like it was a seven game series. There were a couple games that weren't great, but Dwayne had the game winner in game one. And then uh, it ends up going seven games and you guys end up prevailing. And then you go and play a very good Indiana team in the second round and lose uh, in six games, to your old friend, Jermaine O'Neal actually, and who was 
uh, who was on, on that squad. But And, of course, the dunk of Dwayne on Jermaine is, is the play that a lot of people remember from that. But Dwayne specifically, because you mentioned when you first saw him, but by the end of his rookie season, were you thinking, wow, this kid has, like, Hall of Fame potential? I knew that towards the beginning. I mean, I knew what he was doing in practice, too. He was just playing within the confines of what Stan wanted him to do. But he he would always show a little greatness here and there on, on some dunk. It's weird. You know, you see some people like LeBron. Of course, the whole world got to see it because they were televising his uh, high school games. And then he goes to the league. But even when he first came in the league, his, the first two, maybe three years, he wasn't that yet. You know what I'm saying? He was still trying to feel his way through it. And then I seemed like after that third year, boom, he was – LeBron James superstar doing it all. Dwayne came in, man. He, he kind of had that in the very beginning. Like when we had to tell him, pass the ball. No, nah, man. Coach told me if I'm open, shoot it. And then, you know, I wasn't like somebody to just tell that to, but he told me that and I respected him. Like, shoot, all right, this kid knows what he wants to do. And then uh, just watching him throughout, throughout the season, he would do things in practice. Then Cass would be like, you see what Dwayne shit on, what's his name? Oh, my God. You know? <laughs> The vets should be talking about him because he was humble too, man. That, 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 they were they were very humble. He and UD really humble. Yeah, and we weren't seeing much of that in the league at that time. Believe me. Final thing on this, and I want to get to some of your post career stuff. Uh, do you have one Stan Van Gundy story that you can share with us? Uh, I probably do. But I can't really remember any of them. Thing I remember most about Stan is he loved those diet Pepsi. I mean, he drank them all day. I was like, man, is it healthy to drink Diet Pepsi that every, I mean, that many every day, even though they're Diet Pepsi? Um, he, I, it's just such a difference between him and Riley. If you think about Riley, you know, well-dressed, just to the T, never sweats, nothing, just, you know, on it. And then they're staying going, come on, guys, let's do it. Shit. <laughs> like, all right, let's go. <laughs> they were they were so opposite, you know. High crook and all that stuff. He don't give a damn. He's there coaching. If he's got to jump out there and get in the scrap, he's going to jump out there and get in the scrap. I think that runs in the Van Gundy family. That's why his brother jumped on Zoe's leg that time. If, if Stan had an, a situation where he could jump on a leg, he would have jumped on a leg too. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, there was this uh, this one time uh, after that season, actually, um, when Lamar and Dwayne we're up in Jacksonville for Olympic uh, U.S. team qualifying. And uh, I remember seeing Lamar there and, and, and saying, hey, Lamar. And he goes, that's not my name. And I said, what do you mean? And he goes, my name is MFR. I said, what do you mean? He said, that's what Stan called me the whole season. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, so I, I, you know, I, that's, that's what he told me basically that that's what he dealt with from Stan. Um, you end up, you mentioned when Shaq decided that he was wanted to get out of Los Angeles, Riley makes the move. You thought you'd be heading the other direction. You headed the other direction with Lamar and with Karan. And uh, for those two guys, uh, it ended up uh, working out. I mean, Karan, it didn't work out quite as well in LA, but obviously he moved on to other places and had success. Uh, for Lamar, it did work out um, in LA. Do you ever look back at that team and wonder what if? Because we asked Udonis that question. He says sometimes he does. Like, obviously getting Shaq was great for the franchise and and it elevated the franchise in an international level. And they ended up winning a championship and getting to, you know, game seven of an Eastern Conference Finals before that. But do you ever think back, if they had let it grow with you and Eddie as the vets, adding some other pieces to it, 
Udonis and, and Dwayne and Karan and Lamar as kind of the core young guys. How far do you think that team could have gone? Uh, I don't think we'll ever really know because, I mean, Shaq is one of those players that, you know, he, he can change destinies of teams, especially when he was younger, being with the Lakers, and then coming into Miami even. I mean, I can remember when I was watching, you know, wasn't never bitter with Riley for getting rid of me. I knew it was a good move and always kept in touch. I always knew I had a place to come back to if I wanted to come back to it. But when you add a shack, you know that something good's going to happen because you can take pieces in any from any of the other positions and, and put them in there. But you got a Dwayne Wade already. You got a Udonis Haslam who's tough. He's going to give you tough defense. He's going to rebound. Um, you know that you're, you, something great's going to happen. And with that team that we had, we could have grown it, but I also say this, if I if he would have kept it the same, I don't know how much more he would have got out of me because my knee was already going arthritic. My last year in Phoenix, I didn't play that much because it was just bone on bone arthritic. And so I'd have been that player that's taking up cap room, can't really do much because of his leg and things like that. So I from that standpoint, I'm almost glad that he, you know, traded me because I wouldn't want to let the organization down like that. And then I know I wasn't gonna be in LA long, except for for a year. Uh but yeah, I mean, you can. we can all sit around and dream and think, yeah, maybe we'd have been able to do this. But I, I think we got to take in the other factors, too. And I can only do me because I only know how I was feeling. My knee was on its way downhill anyway. Hi, it's Steve Goldstein, Sportsnet Canada NHL reporter Elliot Friedman joined us on the last Goldie on Ice podcast. He told us just what the Panthers are getting in new scorer Mike Hoffman. We took a look at all of his goals and we put a stopwatch on how long the puck was on his stick before he scored. He had 15 goals and the puck was on his stick for 18 seconds. If you put it in his wheelhouse, you know, he can bury it. Don't miss the Goldie on Ice podcast on the NHL and the Florida Panthers right here on the Five Reasons Sports Network. So I want to take you to to post-career a little bit. Obviously, you know, the the Miami years are, are what a lot of Heat fans remember and then may have lost track of you a little bit and you end up retiring like you said your body you know kind of broke down at that stage I want to go to the diagnosis that you had early onset parkinson's can you take us through that the shock of it how it developed how you were feeling that led you to actually get a diagnosis and sort of how that started your life changing yeah i was i was diagnosed in 2008 I was playing with the Lakers in 05, got amnestied and went to Phoenix and then uh, retired there in 2006. But when I was in L.A., I could notice that I wasn't as coordinated as I used to be. And then when I went to Phoenix, I would be playing one-on-one with Kurt Thomas because they never practiced in Phoenix. They'd just come in for a walkthrough and that'd be it, which was fine with me at that point in my career. And so Kurt and I would always play one-on-one and I blew past him and tried to dunk it and got hung. And then when I turned and looked at him, he was looking at me crazy. He goes, man, you might want to go get checked. And I go, why? He goes, I don't know what you just did, but it looked messed up. Your body like jerked or something. I go, I just, I ain't jump high enough. He goes, son, you didn't not only jump high enough, you look like somebody shot you when you went up. He said, you need to get that looked at. So I went to the trainer and he sent me to their neurologist. And I told him, I said, you know, I feel uncoordinated. And then also there's this little skin tremor in my wrist right here, just this is a little piece of skin that would tremor. He goes, you know, with these things, those types of things happen. You're in your 12th year. You're 34. You're in your 12th year, but it's like you probably played 20 as hard as you play. You're going to have those things. So I didn't think nothing of it. Now I retired and I came back to Miami. Now I remember the first thing I did was I went to the first game of the season and that was it. I dropped off into some deep depression. I was depressed for like nine months before I got help. And then 
once I got help with that, I knew there was something wrong because now, you know, the tremor in my wrist was in my finger. And so I ended up getting my family and moving back to Portland in 2008. And that's when I was diagnosed. When I was diagnosed with it, I was just like, in all honesty, there was so much going on in my personal life at the time. It was, it was just, just another blow. Like, okay, now I have Parkinson's. What else? Come on, let's do it. What else? What else I got to deal with? So after I kind of got over the shock of that, then I started to kind of look into what can be done. Even though they say there's no cure, I started going online, looking at all these supposed cures they found in China. And I can't tell you how many times I almost jumped on an airplane to go to China or Mexico for some miracle cure. But I had good people around me. Thank God they kept me from doing it. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to accept something like that when every time you tear something or you get hit or you do something, there's a surgery or a pill or something that can clear it up. But then all of a sudden now you got something that you got to fight even harder, but you're not going to win. And I don't mean that like, like I'm going to drop over today. I, I get a chance to live a good full life, but eventually, you know, it's going to win. And the shock of it is that for context for people, I believe only 5% of people who get Parkinson's get it under age 40. So it's highly unusual for that to happen. So how did your life before you went public, and I want to talk about that a little too, how did your life start to change? You know, I was going through a divorce with my wife, was stay-at-home dad for the first time, you know. And, and I mean, I was probably, the, the best thing about it all was I was home so much that, you know, I really got to see my kids and really, I wasn't that dad that was gone on a flight here, there. I, it was me. It was actually Gina that was gone all the time because she was all over the world doing Zumba. And she, she's had a great career with great friends and great co-parents. Nothing bad to say about Gina whatsoever. Really proud of her where she's taking her life. But uh, I got a chance to, you know, really get to know my kids and stuff. And I went through my own ups and downs. But all in all, it, you know, once I started to meet the Parkinson's community, like Michael J. Fox and Ali, and started meeting all these wonderful people who were doing these great things, then that's when I really wanted to jump into things and, and, and start a foundation that could help people that were in my situation where they were young, had, had young families, and could be proactive about their treatment, meaning through their diet and exercise. What was the reaction to you when you decided to go public? I had a lot of guys, a lot of friends call. Just say, oh, man, I'm sorry to hear about it. It's like, man, thank you. I'm all right. Everything's cool. But the best thing about it, Ethan, and Chris was that it was finally a weight off my shoulders because, you know, I, I went to a, a, a Blazer basketball game earlier that year. It was me, Jerome Kersey and Chris Dudley. And it was the night that they were honoring Kevin Duckworth, who had passed away. And I remember I was in the tunnel. I was so nervous. I was almost going you know, to pass out because I was like, man, they're going to see my hand shaking. They're going to see my hand shaking. And Jerome comes up and puts his hands on my shoulders. This was strong. And I go, man, see this? And he goes, yeah, I've been noticing your tremor a little bit. I said, I don't know what to tell him. I don't know what's wrong. He goes, don't tell me. You can't even really tell, man. He said, this crowd loves you. They don't care if you whole body shaking. They, they're going to love you. And so I went out there and I, I saw a video of it. And I'm just looking into my eyes. My eyes were terrified that somebody was going to see it. But you couldn't even really tell. So when I went public, it was a big relief because, you know, I would wanted to do some kind of commentating and things like that. My agent was trying to set it up, but I, I couldn't go to the, the tryouts or to the camp and stuff because I didn't know how to explain the tremor. And so people, I think some of them might've thought that I thought I was a little arrogant or something like, well, he doesn't want to do the trial. You know, I worried about my kids and, and, and what they were thinking. And the one thing I just assured them was that it's not something that's going to kill me. And it's something I have a good long life with. I got to, you know, change a lot of things about the way I live, but you know, I'll be here hopefully to walk your sisters down the aisle. And that's all they want to know. They just want to know dad's okay. Like sometimes, um, you know, I went to my son's 
basketball practice. And I'm trembling. I'm looking at his friends, looking, looking. So when we got home, I, I told him, I said, I don't know if I'm going to coach anymore. He goes, why? Why, Dad? Why aren't you going to coach? And I said, I just feel like I'm embarrassing you. And he goes, how? And I go, well, because my hand shakes. And then he's like, Dad, you better not quit because your hand shakes. I don't care about that. And anybody says anything about it, I'm going to beat them up. <laughs> <laughs> my friend Jaden. I, like, I was like, all right, I'm not going to quit, man. I just want to make sure you embarrass me, Dad. And he's only like a <laughs> you mentioned your relationships that you developed with some celebrities who've been affected by this. Um, you know, Muhammad Ali and Michael J. Fox, those two relationships that with the Ali family, which I know has continued after his passing, what have those two relationships meant to you over this period of time? Especially in the very beginning, I mean, it was just, they don't make sense of everything because they didn't call me asking me, what are you going to do for Parkinson's? They just called me and wanted to know how I was doing. Uh, Lonnie Ali was like speaking to a, a aunt or something. She wanted to make, baby, are you okay? You know, I know you're going through a divorce. I know this, but that's okay. These things happen. You know, you need to, right now, you need to worry about you and taking care of yourself so you can be there for them kids. It was one of those kind of conversations. So I actually felt like I was talking to Aunt, Aunt Lonnie. And then, you know, I would talk to her sister, Marilyn, who was uh, Muhammad's caregiver a lot. And she would she would share stories about certain things that Muhammad went through, that I was going through. And it was, and it was just a good relationship. It was, it was a great relationship. Still is. And then with Mike, I, I'm a groupie, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a, I'm a movie groupie. Back to the future, whatever one you want to put on Team Wolf. I'm a big Michael Jay. You know, he told me how he felt that it was going to be very tough for me because of the vanity that he carries and I carry being a professional athlete and an actor. It was going to be hard to get past that because for all these years, we've been able to correct things that were, were ailing us, but not going to be able to correct this. And, you know, people are going to look, people are going to watch, and you just got to realize that it's not a bad thing. Even if it is, it's not our fault. It's not our job for us to go out and say, quit looking at me, you know, that kind of stuff told me to, you know, take my time and really think about if I want to, you know, join the fight against Parkinson's. He said, if, if you don't, nobody will look at you and say, why isn't he doing anything? It's not at all. It's your decision. And I told him right after that, like, now we're going to have a gala. This is our first gala. We're going to give you all the money. He was like, okay. And that gala was called uh, Shake It Till We Make It in the first year. And I, I want to touch on that here a little bit more because I, I wrote a story about this at the time and about Pat Riley coming out to Oregon to give a speech there, uh, what he calls his forever man speech. And I'm just going to give a little background on this before I bring you in on it. But Pat has cards he likes to give out. If you, if you do an interview in his office, he'll give you a card. He has the 15 strong cards, which are for the, the 2006 championship team. He has others that have sayings on them. And he also has these cards that say forever man. And he considered you a forever man and presented that to you I believe, out there at this event. Can you get into that speech a little bit and, and kind of what Pat was trying to get across and what it meant to you? Man, let me tell you. I had to speak after Pat and before Michael J. Fox, and it was just, wow. Pat is, I mean, I don't have to tell y'all what kind of cat that dude is, man. He is just, he, you know, he's a good dude. You know, business is business, whatever. He's a good businessman. He does all that great stuff, but he, he's, a, he's a good human being. He and, he and Chris, I'm, uh, they're always going to be two of my favorite people. I, mean, I don't care what anybody else, his relationship with him is. That's my relationship with him. Man, he, he gave this speech and it was kind of like everybody was wondering where he was going with it, talking about whitewater rafting. And he says, 
it's not if you're going to go in the water, it's when you're going to go in the water. And they tell you, you will have to participate in saving your own life. And if you don't, you're going to drown and that'll be the end of it. You sign the release, you know, not soon. And so he talks about going in and going under and just wondering if he's going to be able to reach that hand or something. And the hand reaches out and he flipped it and turned it into something with Zoe and then with me and then it, it just, it was one of the best speech. Everybody was so captivated by that speech. I mean, we, everybody was just looking like, well, my goodness, did you hear? It, it, it was just the, the one of the best speeches I'd ever heard. And I had made my way to the back and I'm sitting there with Michael J. Fox and, and he said, hey, Brian, it's a great event, man. And you, you, know, you guys really know how to do it. And I go, I'm not going out there. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're going out there, you're speaking that, speaking that. I go, Man, I got bricks. He goes, what do you mean you got bricks? I got I got bricks in my pants. I'm shitting bricks. He goes, oh, you'll be all right. Man. I looked at him and he goes, you're going out there. You're fucking going out there. Don't sit here and tell me you're going out there. And finally, he stayed right there. He wouldn't even leave me. And y'all went on, out on the stage. And then Pat, I mean, just, you know, it wasn't in the script or anything. It was over, but he gave Sharice my executive director at the time of video and says, I'll cue you when to play that. He ain't asked. He just said, I'll cue you when to play that. And she's like, oh, okay, yeah, sure. And he put together this heat video with Rascal Flatts. I think it's called My Wish For You. It, I mean, dude, it played me and I sat there on stage, cheering up, looked down, my mama and my, my, my kids are all crying. It was just Pat Riley all the way, you know? And then, you know, he knew the calls, the heat, have been such a great organization given to my foundation since I've been diagnosed, you know, gave a generous donation and then reached in his pocket and Chris and Pat will be also giving. He just, that's Pat. That's Pat. First class, great individual. And he's had so many guys, um, on his rosters, uh, guys he cared about that have dealt with adversity too. I mean, you mentioned Zoe. Obviously, uh, Magic is somebody he cares about quite a bit, and Magic has had his own uh, health situation that he's had to deal with over the years. Um, Anthony Mason, your former teammate who passed uh, a few years ago. I mean, it's there's just been a number of situations with guys who've had to deal with with stuff, and and uh, I talked to him about that recently, and it, and I think that is one of the things that gets lost about Pat because we've actually talked about this on the podcast that. There's this perception of Pat that he's this cutthroat godfather type figure, and yet he's very, very sentimental. Like, uh, and a lot of his basketball decisions are guided by sentimentality. In fact, I think the decisions he made last summer to bring a lot of the team back here in Miami had to do with that. And so I just think there's this perception of him that's, that's not right. I got to ask you, do, he gave you a Forever Man card. Do you still have it? I've got it deep down in my damn file somewhere. <laughs> he gave me the forever card. He gave me the forever card, and and that means a lot. But he gave me when he knew that he traded me, so he had to trade me. I I don't know if he was on the road or not, but he had this envelope, and he wrote this big long letter on this envelope. Some of the things he mentioned on that was right there, man. He's forever, man. For if I can ever do anything for the Heat, the Miami community, you, Ethan. I consider you a friend. You know, all the reporters, y'all were very good to me when I was there. People weren't that hot on the heat, especially that 03, that 03 season. That was goodness. Hey, that was a tough one, man, but I'm always indebted to Pat and the Arisons. I got to say one more thing real quick about Mickey and Madeline Arison. Let me tell you about them. My grandmother, who I loved with all my heart, with all my heart, my mom's mom and dad came down to visit. 
in the uh, parking lot and she's looking out the gate and says, oh my God, I believe that's the biggest boat I've ever seen in my life. And Mickey was right there and heard her and he comes over, grabs her by the shoulder. Well, I don't want you to see it right here. I want to take you on it. Walk my grandma across the street onto the yacht with my whole family. I'm sure everything was clean and spick and span, which it was. And we're all coming from the game. There's like 20 of us walking through this boat. He's showing her everything. This is this. This is what we're doing. Man, you tell me one other owner that's going to do that. And maybe maybe there is another owner out there that will, but I, I don't think so. Like, his family's getting ready to go on the boat for vacation. And he holds all that up to take my grandma through. That's, that's what kind of owner you got down there. Before we close here, Brian, I want to transition to just what life is like for you now. I, I've noticed that there's a Sports Illustrated story that we're going to post that certainly people should read because they get into some of your adventures and your travels um, in recent years. I know you went through a bit of a down period um, that you had to deal with a little bit, and and I know that I, it can be a struggle for you at times, but uh, what is life like for you now, and, and what is some of the, the stuff that you're trying to to do with your foundation and kind of what's the next steps for Brian Grant? When people ask me about the Sports Illustrated thing, I have to make three corrections because there were three major things that got mentioned the wrong way. One is my oldest son, Amani. He wasn't mentioned. All my kids were mentioned and he wasn't. Two, they said I was married for seven years when I had 15 years with Gina, which isn't a big one, but I just want everybody to know I was married to her for 15 years. And then the last one was my relationship with my father, you know, I went into the good, the bad, and the ugly. They took the bad and the ugly and, and printed it and left out the good, which I thought was very unfair to my father because he's my best friend now. Has been the best father, best grandfather since years ago. And so I always like to say that if you read that, don't think of my dad as a monster. I'm sure most of us, a lot of fathers and sons butt heads a lot. We butted heads, but we made it back to being father and son and good friends. So go ahead, E. What's the next? Take us through like what your regimen is and and just sort of how you deal with what you have in terms of Parkinson's on a day by day basis. Well, I try to get up and I try to do cardio 30 minutes. I tell you what, I got this Peloton bike and, and it, it, it's, it's really helped me with uh, cardio because I, my arch dropped and I can't really put a whole lot of pressure on my foot. But I usually get a 30 minute cardio in and, and then a sauna and uh, go and meet and greet people or go to lunches or coffee with people. Uh, and then the rest of it, it usually involves just my kids. With uh, My four boys are all really out of the house. And then my 15 and 16 year old daughters, that's work in itself. If any of you men out there got 15, 16 year old daughters, you know what I mean? So I've always got the shotgun loaded, kept to the right. Uh, <laughs> Brian, nice. Brian, my daughter's my daughter's going to be four in three weeks, and we're having a princess spa birthday party so that there will be no boys. Um, so I, I'm starting early on that. Um, there's going to be 17 girls getting their, their hair and nails done, and that's the way it's going to stay for the next 30 years. So there you go. Uh, you, and so you think that. I'm going to allow you to go on and think that, everybody, but – when you said four, I was like, oh, I can remember my girls. I just wanted to love on dad. And they wanted to go everywhere dad went. And then they 10 and four, you know, 11 and 12. A little bit changing, but they still love dad. 13 on, forget about it. Forget about it, friend. friend. <laughs> and now you're just sitting there looking at them like, where'd my little girl go? <laughs> my girls. I got you. And so what is it that you want people to know about the foundation 
work that you're doing and and kind of uh, again from a you mentioned that you had wanted at one point to get into more broadcasting is that is that still something that you want to do i like what are the next 10 years for brian grant going to be like i've been doing a lot of public speaking and you can go to BrianGrantSpeaks.com. it probably wasn't the best thing for someone with parkinson's to get into who's already a nervous wreck but I'm, i'm getting a lot better at it a lot better. The more you do, the better you get. The more you practice, the better it gets. So I do a lot of public speaking, like I said, at BrianGrantSpeaks.com. I go to a lot of golf tournaments, a lot of galas for other charities, you know, that those charities support mine. We support them. I just, I don't know, man. It's, I love Portland. I love being there. I love being in Miami when I'm back, seeing my friends out there. But um, yeah, I mean, if if anybody wants to participate or help out with anything, or you just want to know more about the Brian Grant Foundation, you can go to BrianGrant.org and go through our website. We have a, lot, a ton of things that we do, whether you want to be a volunteer, whether you want to be someone who donates money or your time, we'd love to have you. Uh, we have things going on down in Miami. We have a train-to-trainer program where we take trainers of any kind of um, sports training, whether it be like MMA, powerlifting, whatever, and put people through these uh a one-day course, and they become Parkinson certified. Not saying that we're teaching them how to train, but we're teaching them what works better for Parkinson's cases versus what doesn't. So you can look that up too. If any of the trainers that I know down there, I'm trying to get them all to sign up for it. If you're a trainer, please look into it. All right, so definitely check out the Brian Grant Foundation. And again, we're going to post that up on our Twitter page, up at Five Reasons Sports. Brian, thanks for taking the time and doing this with us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Again, one of my favorites. There are people down here who are more fond of that team than they are of a couple of the championship teams, which is a pretty amazing thing. But I, I think that team really sort of captured the imagination of the public down here. And uh, and hopefully, Brian, when you come down here in Miami, we can get a chance to see you too. Okay, guys. Hey, thanks a lot. I really appreciate you guys having me on, man. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.